today provide you with in-depth news and expert analysis, tell you the whole story and the bigger picture, bring you the news you want to know only on today. Sui with you on this Tuesday, February the nineteenth, twenty nineteen. Happy Lantern Festival! The Lantern Festival marks the first full moon of the Lunar New Year and also marks the traditional end to the Lunar New Year celebrations. People here in China eat sweet dumplings or tangyuan, watch lantern shows, and guess lantern riddles to celebrate the festival. And also for the first time in ninety-four years, China's Palace Museum, also known as the Forbidden City, will open its door to the public after dark. The tickets were sold out almost immediately, so maybe we have to wait until the next time. But we can also spend the evening watching the gala by China Media Group, featuring songs, dance, comedy, and folk customs. So please enjoy your Lantern Festival. Now, coming back to today's headline news, 16 U.S. states are suing Trump over emergency wall declaration. Bring them home or not? Debate rages over ISIS bribes, and former U.S. President Barack Obama is said to be involved with NBA-backed Africa League. To hear this episode again, or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching for World News Analysis. Sixteen U.S. states have jointly sued U.S. President Donald Trump to challenge his national emergency declaration over founding a wall between the U.S. and Mexico. Trump signed a national emergency on Friday to build the U.S.-Mexico border wall and push for his signature campaign promise. The move gave the president power to bypass Congress to get access to money. California Attorney General Javier Becerra says the legal action is aimed at preventing Trump from quote unilaterally robbing taxpayer funds lawfully set aside by Congress for American people. Now, being with us to talk about this is Edward Lehman, legal affairs commentator and managing director of Lehman Li and Xu Law Firm, and Harvey Zoldan, fellow of the Center for China and Globalization, a think tank based in Beijing. So, Harvey,、uh, what can we expect next? Like, what real impact does this、uh, joint lawsuit have, or it is largely symbolic? No, no, it's not symbolic at all. It's really about uh, whether uh, our country. Can continue under its、uh, constitutional system of separation of powers. So、um, we can expect that the lawsuit and the others about to be filed、uh, will work their way through the district and circuit courts of appeals, and eventually will、uh, reach the Supreme Court.、Um, so、uh, when that happens, it's going to be fascinating to watch if the five of the nine Supreme Court justices, two appointed by Trump,、uh, will side. With upholding constitutionally protected liberties, or defer to very robust presidential powers, and we're going to follow with interest whether the justices who usually support Trump and a literal reading of the Constitution will support him or the Constitution. And I really worry, though, that the, the extraordinary and mostly undefined powers conferred on a president of the United States. To declare a national emergency, historically, have rested on the assumption that the president will act both rationally and in the national interest. Trump has shown time and time again that he's neither the self-proclaimed you know, stable genius that he claims to be, nor that he'll uphold his oath to see that our laws are faithfully executed. And then, Mr. Lehman, what are the legal arguments do the 16 states have to in order to win the legal battle? Well, I mean, to to win, it's it's open for debate, just like、uh, was said earlier. I mean, this this is a national emergency. It, it comes under the National Emergencies Act, which was、uh, started under President Gerald Ford in 1976. Since that time, there's been 59、uh, federal emergencies have actually been declared. And 20, only 27 of those have "quote unquote" expired, while 32 remain in effect. The, so the critics of the president will say that、uh, that this is not this is a contrived、uh, national emergency. But you see, there's 32 that are still in effect from、uh, national emergencies that have been declared previously.、Uh, so as, I mean, I'm just saying, as of February 15th,、uh, 2019,、uh, and Happy Lantern Festival, by the way, see.、Mm. And, uh, but the the other thing, so the, they're obviously not eating dumplings at the White House tonight. But the the issue is、um, is about、uh, the whether property rights have been 
have been redirected for the 16 states. These are attorney generals in each of these states, and they actually bring the civil actions on behalf of the citizens of those states. Those 16 states are in um, you know, in the, what's considered the ninth district, which is the second, the appellate. It's brought in uh, federal district court in uh, in San Francisco, this, this particular case by the California attorney general uh, and then the other 15 attorneys general. And then it'll be appealed to the Ninth Circuit, which has been traditionally um, not uh, siding on, on Mr. Trump's side. And that's what we saw previously with the so-called Muslim ban. Um, but then the Supreme Court uh, made a different decision at, at that level. So that, so it's, it's, it's hard to say. But they're saying that property rights have been redirected, uh, that this is not a national emergency, but rather a contrived one. And... Uh, and it's kind of game on, so we'll see what, what it says. I do believe it will come back to the Supreme Court. Ruth Gator, Bader Ginsburg, by the way, has been ill, uh, and she's back today, uh, coincidentally. She's been walking a mile a day and was only seen once in the last couple of weeks. So that may or may not affect the outcome of that. But there's some time before that'll be heard. Hmm. The president himself says the border is in a crisis, and that's the reason he declared the national emergency. So, Harvey, what's the real situation on the border and also the situation regarding illegal immigrants? Well, you know, what you just uh, said, those are Trumpian fantasies. Um, the U.S. measures the numbers of uh, migrants who are caught between legal ports of entry, not at ports of entry. And so... Uh, you'd never know it from Trump, but the number is comparable to the lows of the 1970s. So the number of people uh, coming across, uh, trying to get around walls or unmarked borders, uh, is very low. And also, uh, one of the things that uh, Trump wants to do uh, here is to take money from the Defense Department uh, and uh, repurpose that for uh, the wall. But uh, the money, uh, ironically, that he's trying to take from the Defense Department for a drug entry uh, is uh, going to uh, be wasted because most of the drugs that come into the United States actually come through the legal ports of entry. So um, this is uh, these are another set of fake Trump facts. So, Mr. Lehman, uh, what's your observation? You know, I think, I mean, for for critics and for for uh, for supporters alike, I think this whole thing is really problematic. Not because of the so-called declaration of uh, emergency on the southern border, and not on anyone's opinion with regards to immigration, but you know, it's it's the situation where those that live by the sword will die by the sword. So, I mean, right now we might there might be some Trump supporters that would be say this is great. He can he can make a national emergency and declare it when. Powers change, and and this is not popular amongst another group of people. Uh, then then they will also feel the pains and arrows of these national emergencies. So that that's what they tried to do in 1976. They tried to curb in because Woodrow Wilson, I think, was the first one 100 years ago that declared national emergency. There was national emergencies that were declared by uh, by Franklin Roosevelt. And what what. I see as someone who is a lawyer and that this becomes very dangerous ground um, when you declare a national emergency, it is, but it's extremely difficult. I think it will be very difficult to overcome this from, uh, you know, this will probably go to the Supreme Court. It, it's interesting because Mr. Trump in the Rose Garden said, well, it'll go to federal court, then it'll go to the Ninth Circuit, we'll get a bad opinion there, we'll get a bad opinion at the federal court, and then we'll hopefully get a fair shake in the Supreme Court. And I do believe that's probably what it's going to wind up to, but it's not because he's getting a fair shake, but I think it's extremely difficult the way the law is written now, no matter what your opinion is, to overcome a president invoking national uh, emergency. However, I mean, he, he, they don't have the congressional, because we have a separation of powers, they don't have a congressional vote, I think, to overcome his declaration of a national emergency in Congress either. So I think probably Mr. Trump is on safe ground. All, I mean, and Harvey and I can have, you know, have a small bet over this at the end of the day. And uh, again, not as a Trump supporter, but as someone who loves the law, um, I think he's probably going to be okay with this, and um, but I don't think it's a good thing for the United States. Ed, my my worry hmm. is that um, the uh, Supreme Court uh, could uh, declare this to be constitutional because the courts mm -hmm. give great deference to the president, and I I really worry that 
because the president has such unprecedented and unlimited powers, like uh, even cutting off the Internet or cutting off radio and TV stations at a declaration of a national emergency, is that he mm-hmm. has some cocked up uh, idea around the time of the next election um, and declares an emergency and evokes these powers and maybe even tries to postpone the election. So I'm really worried about it in Trump's hands. I'm not worried about it as much, although I'm still worried if it's in the hands of other presidents. But because of Trump is so peculiar... I worry about it a lot. Hmm. So, Harvey, uh, after the partial government shutdown and not now the uh, national emergency, why does President Trump insist on building the wall? I think it's uh, because it's red meat for his base. The real story, though, as I understand it, is that um, the president, who's far from being the stable genius he says he is, was given this issue by his campaign advisors because because he has a limited intellectual capacity and he could handle this concept as a builder. He could really identify with the building of walls. And so he grabbed it, and it's something that he's uh, been doing since the, since the campaign. So, uh, Mr. Lehman, uh, how do you expect uh, the border issue and also other issues like the Mueller probe will play out in the upcoming presidential campaign? Well, I mean, it's obviously going to be highly contested. I think that the the Mueller is, we don't know what he knows yet. And I mean, that's to be seen. I mean, just on, on, I I do think that, right, this is red meat for his base. This is the only thing, the main thing he promised. It's not like he can say, I was the governor of the state of some state and I was having this long track record. He's made a promise to the American people. He's not meeting that promise and that this is where he comes into into difficulties. I mean, just so you know, but as far as the national emergencies are concerned, I mean, uh, Carter declared uh, two, Reagan six, George Herbert Walker Bush four, Clinton 17, Obama 13, as a matter of fact. So Trump has already done three uh, to this date. So this is, uh, you know, this, this is something, of course, that's troubling. And like I said, I think that this needs to be looked at again, not not necessarily in the, in the only in the context of Mr. Trump in this particular case, but just that there needs to be this balance of power. Um, but no, I do think that all of this has to do with the election. And Mr. Trump was very <laughs> brazen about it, saying that, you know, he's he's built part of a wall. And part of the reason I think this was all brought together was that um, he only got $1.4 billion when he was initially at one point, I think, offered $2.7 billion, and that flew against him. So this this was a bit of an embarrassment for him. Thank you very much. That was Edward Lehman, legal affairs commentator and managing director of Lehman, Lee and Xu Law Firm, and Harvey Zoden, fellow of the Center for China and Globalization, a think tank based in Beijing. We're talking about 16 American states are suing President Trump over emergency war declaration. Still to come, bring them home or not. Debate rages on over ISIS brides. You're listening to Today. Stay with us. As a guest speaker with today, I feel very much grateful for providing a chance for me to communicate to the world and China's progress and China's accomplishments and also China's rich cultural heritage and, of course, China's desire to integrate itself into the international community. I believe today opens the window as well as build a bridge between people in China and the world. Great efforts made by the staff today become one of the great uh, platforms for policy debates and information dissemination. And I wish today have an even brighter and greater tomorrow. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us. An American woman and a British teenager who fled to Syria to marry Islamic State group fighters are pleading to be allowed to return home. Honda Mothana left Alabama, the U.S., four years ago for Islamic State-held territory in Syria. She was found living with her 18-month-old son in a refugee camp in northern Syria, where Shamima Begum from London gave birth to a baby boy over the weekend. News reports and interviews with the so-called ISIS brides or ISIS wives have multiplied in recent weeks. This has coincided with U.S. President Donald Trump's claim that a terror group is close to being defeated. 
President Trump has also demanded that Western countries accept ISIS fighters and hold criminal proceedings in their home countries. But Europe's reaction to the demand is mixed, with Germany's foreign minister Heiko Maas arguing this would be extremely difficult to realize, largely due to the absence of judicial information. So now being with us to talk about this issue is Dr. He Wenping, a senior research fellow of the Institute of West Asia and African Studies at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. So Dr. He is a quite hot topic on international media outlets these days. So first, how do you see those particular cases surrounding these so-called ISIS brides or ISIS wives? And like how to find a balance between legal issues and also maybe sympathy? Uh, well, this uh, so-called uh, ISO bride, I think uh, actually uh, those things have been there uh, for uh, for years, not first time to be reported uh, by the media. But this time around, because the ISO, uh, the, the you know the defeating to the ISO now is almost to the final uh, final stage. Uh, now they have been surrounded uh, by those uh, uh, you know anti-ISO the forces. Uh, like Kurdish militia and also the Syria, uh, those the democratic forces, so and also supported by the U.S. So that's why suddenly this ISO bride issue once again becoming the focus of the media because those brides they want to go home, like uh, they come from uh, Britain, they come from Germany. Now they want to come back to their hometown to be uh, together with their family. So suddenly, yeah, this issue becoming a hot spot. But it's very uh, difficult to find a balance between the legal issue and the social sympathy. Uh, social sympathy is there. People uh, think, oh, you see this young girl. They also, you know, maybe uh, it's, they have been there uh, by some wrong thinking or by some, uh, you know, lured by some uh, those uh, extremists, but they're still young. Uh, the kids also living a very miserable life. So now it's it's very natural to think. They have every right to go back to the hometown to be with their family. Uh, but the legal issue is also very tough there because they have been there not just to simply go outside somewhere for some uh, time. They have been together with those uh, terrorists. Uh, maybe, you know, who knows uh, what kind of thinking in their mind and who knows who is still in charge of their behavior. So for the European countries, they think they have lost a long contact with those people. No matter you are bride or you are other, like adults, or like a, no matter you are woman or, or, or man. So totally they're thinking this from the perspective of security, uh, from this, uh, you know, the, the, the social unity and the social order. So now we heard President Trump is asking European countries to take back those ICO prisoners and ICO fighters. How do we understand this proposal? Is it is it an an attainable proposal? I mean, uh, well, uh, Trump's idea, uh, of course, uh, coming from uh, U.S. interest. So number one, the interest is Trump wants to push the uh, the European countries to take more responsibility. Because uh, as many as like 800 uh, those uh, ISO fighters have been arrested right now in the hands of the U.S. or its allies. But the U.S., of course, they want to withdraw their troops uh, from Syria, call them back to the United States. They will not take those, uh, uh, those uh, terrorists have been arrested, those people taken back to the U.S. These things they certainly they don't want to do. So where they should uh, put those people to? Of course, they are thinking, all right, it's the time right now for European allies. You should do more. So because they're coming from the, your country, European country, now it's the time for your guys to take it back. So this is Trump's idea. Uh, he doesn't want to take any responsibility. So the further one, uh, plus you need more like a judicial procedure. You need some more resources, financial budget. So certainly he doesn't want to do. And he also thinks this is not the United States job. This is a U.S. job. Another purpose for the United States is uh, with those things, you know, coming up, things, sending back. And the U.S. has uh, every reason now to fully withdraw its troops from Syria. Now he will say everything about the ISIL now has been finished. Yeah, 100% defeated. 
uh, this ISO, including yeah, those arrested, uh, those uh, ISO, those fighters. So nothing left. Because before, when the President Trump mentioned this withdrawal troops from Syria, and then at that time, a lot of international media saying, all oh, those ISOs are still there, you, 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 you haven't defeated them. But now when we talk about this uh, 800 saying now is the time. So everything is wrapped up. Now it's a period already. So when we talk about those young men, young women, sometimes boys and girls, they travel from Western societies to join the ranks in, in Syria, to join ISIL. What's behind the phenomenon? Like, why did those people from developed Western societies want to go to those places in, in the first place? Yeah, uh, look things on the surface. People say it's not easy to understand. But if you look deeper, you will find it's very uh, it's very easy, actually, because the majority of those people, uh, when I watch the TV, like uh, from like BBC this morning, to see that a British bride, originally from Britain, but her faith, you know, it's coming from like North Africa countries. Uh, so normally, majority of them, they are second generation of those uh, immigration people immigrated to the European countries, like from North Africa, from Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, or some even immigrated there from the Middle East countries. So those people, uh, their second generation, even though they're born uh, like in UK, like in France, but they have been marginalized. It's not that easy. Even for several generations, those immigration, you can be like fully integrated into the mainstream of those uh, housing countries. So number one, they have been long marginalized. It's very difficult for them to be integrated fully. And some, some you know, in the recent years, the European country, countries suffered for the economic, uh, financial those problems. Economic development is in downturn. So a lot of people lost their jobs. Before, maybe they have jobs, but now it's very difficult. Uh, even those, uh, you know, the native, uh, native uh, those Europeans, now the white people, now they couldn't find jobs. So not mentioned those immigration, those second generation. Uh, normally, uh, generally speaking, they couldn't get very high degree of those diploma. So that's the reason. So it's easier. Jobless and then no hope and then uh, not, not in the mainstream. And then it's easier to be newer uh, to those kind of uh, new thoughts of extremist idea. They now join us. We are fighting for our future our own cause. So this, this, this is the vacuum, spiritual vacuum, and then easily to be filled with those uh, extremist ideas. So last question, how would you evaluate the spillover effect of ISIS fighters and also the terrorist ideology? Yeah, the spillover effect is very dangerous. Uh, you see, that's exactly the reason, the main reason why the European countries uh, doesn't like to take them back. Uh, because uh, if those people now, not if it's 800, even including the, you know, those uh, family members, even saying thousands of people now has been in the hands of this uh, uh, Syria, those uh, anti-terror group. So if those, can you imagine if those people eventually has been sent back uh, to the European countries, uh, uh from the UK and then to France, to Germany, and then even go all the way to the Nordic countries, Nordic countries. So this is like a time bomb, uh, you know, for those uh, security issues in European continent. So because it's not easy to trace all of them, those thousands of people, to trace them. Uh, is it illegal? Even you trace them, is it illegal to trace them? So is uh, everyone needs to have like how many years? Uh, those uh, certain times, like to do the, the you know, to verify uh, their uh, thoughts or their religions, uh, everything. So it's a huge uh, job uh, for make everything clear. And then those people, they will integrate into different those uh, social community. And then you can make them think, uh, they will maybe uh, contact me with others. Maybe some of them, them, them themselves become another center uh, for regrouping. Uh, some other followers. So this is uh, unimaginable uh, uh, for those European countries, their security forces. They cannot handle uh, this big, uh, you know, challenge 
immediately put on their shoulders. Mm. Thank you very much, Dr. He, for your time. We've been talking with Dr. He Wenping, a senior research fellow of the Institute of West Asia and African Studies at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Before we go, a breaking news in the United States: uh, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders has just just announced he will run for the president run in 2020. Coming up, China sets development objectives for the Greater Bay Area. New Zealand Prime Minister disputes reports of diplomatic tensions with China. Former U.S. President Barack Obama is said to be involved with NBA-backed Africa League. If you want to hear this episode again or catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching for World News Analysis. I'm Sui. Stay with us. You're listening to today. I'm Sui. Time for our global survey, where we look at what's happening around the world. Joining me in the studio is my colleague Patrick Flinnery. We begin in Asia tonight, where in Kashmir, the deadliest attacks in decades are worsening relations between India and Pakistan, which both claim parts of the territory. The fastest train in India broke down during its first trip ever, about a hundred miles from its destination in New Delhi. In Oceania, New Zealand is the latest country to demand internet giants like Facebook and Google to pay a digital tax. Australia will begin planting a billion trees to meet climate targets set by the Paris Agreement. In Africa, Nigeria's president warns voters that tampering with the ballot box ahead of elections could cost them their lives. Amazon is expanding its customer base in Kenya, where online shoppers without a credit card can use new technology to pay via Western Union. In the Middle East, the Syrian government ordered more than 300 chemical weapons attacks over the last eight years, according to the Global Public Policy Institute. Later this week, an Israeli nonprofit expects to send the first private aircraft to the moon. In Europe, victims of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church will meet with Pope Francis in Rome to discuss their experiences. Ukraine's foreign minister is now asking the European Union for help to pay for infrastructure he says Russia is suffocating. In Latin America, a farmer in Nicaragua who protested the president last year was sentenced to more than 200 years in prison. Two of Ecuador's seven glaciers are now melting because of climate change, scientists say, a crisis that will affect the nation's water supply. Finally, tonight in North America, the U.S. Air Force is pushing Congress for a law to allow families to break rental agreements in, law- in cases of unsafe housing. Haitian police have arrested a group of Americans armed with semi-automatic guns following a week of anti-government protests. Thanks, Patrick. That winds up today's global survey. Chinese authorities have unveiled a new development plan for the Guangdong, Hong Kong, Macau, Greater Bay Area, with the stated goal of creating a role model of high-quality development. The plan involves turning the southern Chinese area into an international innovation and technology hub through enhanced connectivity. Plans also include turning the region into a major hub for the Belt and Road Initiative. The Greater Bay Area encompasses Hong Kong and Macau, as well as nine cities in Guangdong Province. In 2017, the 11 cities produced one eighth of China's total GDP. Now, for more about this, Zhao Yang earlier talked with Liu Baocheng, associate professor at the Business School of the University of International Business and Economics, and Einar Tongen, author and columnist. So first of all,、uh, Ina, the Greater Bay Area covers an area of fifty-six、uh, thousand square kilometers, population of seventy million, GDP reached around ten trillion yuan. So, so what kind of strategic role does this、uh, play in the overall development of the country? And how would you describe the timing for the releasing of this blueprint?、Uh, first, first off, in terms of importance, you have to look at the his- history of this area. Which has led China's overall development by 3.5、uh, percentage points higher than the gross national average for GDP. So you know, through this whole area, it's been growing at 13.45 percent. And what it represents is、uh, China's new shift on this idea of not a mega city, but mega city clusters. So it brings all of these、um, cities together. It connects them physically, like the Belt and Road, with high-speed、uh, rail. And the idea is to start moving people, funds, and goods very, very、uh, quickly amongst these, so that you start having these kind of synergies that they want between finance, technology. It's both an outward、uh, bridge. It will still continue to be a very big powerhouse for exports, but in, more importantly, in terms of China's future, it will be a, a gateway of imports coming in. So this is、uh, the, the, the main、uh, part of this. But you know you should not est- underestimate this new idea of this kind of megacity cluster development, 
Uh, it's basically a Pearl City, uh, Pearl River Delta relaunch. The Pearl River Delta was what was this area was uh, traditionally called, and it you know carves out new roles for a lot of the cities in this area. And so, Bao Chong, what are the highlights of this、uh, blueprint? The blueprint actually identified five strategic orientations, including the closer integration between mainland Hong Kong and Macau, while upholding the principle of、uh, one country, two systems for the、uh, two SARs. So, it also confirms that、uh, Hong Kong, Macau, Shenzhen, and Guangzhou would be the four key cities of the Bay Area and、uh, the co-engines for the regional development. So, how? Would you explain this? Well, I think this is really a new step forward because、uh, if you look at the past four decades of the China's reform and opening,、uh, it is now the third phase.、Uh, the initial phase was really to、uh, open Chinese door for foreign investment, and the second phase was more、uh, outbound investment. And now、uh, the third phase is really regional integration within. Uh, greater China area. So、uh, actually, over the last five years, we noticed the、uh, Chinese government has really、uh, put a lot more attention to regional integration in、uh, Beijing, Tianjin, Hebei area, in the、uh, Yangtze River Delta, and now the、uh, Greater Bay Area. So it is really the right thing to do to、uh, set up the foundation for global competitiveness. And the highlights for this area, because、uh, this area are、uh, number one, embracing two systems which are、uh, far more market-driven than the inner part of、uh, the entire China, and uh, uh, also that、uh, they have a number of uh, uh, companies that are、uh, globally oriented, particularly with、uh, high-tech. And now they are really moving to、uh, global competitiveness in their、uh, technology. So、uh, it's really the、uh, the right time. So the it.、Mm. And Ina, so talking about the integration. So what do you think is the Hong Kong's role after you know in this、uh, Greater Bay Area, and how will Hong Kong get benefit from it? Well, this is a new lease on life for Hong Kong, which has you know been traditionally hemmed in by its physical borders. So this will really、uh, put it at the center of an integrated、um, regional economy, as uh, Professor uh, has pointed out. This is one of the goals. So they're going to be、uh, very big and in, in services, especially in the finance area and things like that. And what it does is it connects them to other powerhouses that have different respective roles. I mean, people talk a lot about you know the difference between Shenzhen and and Hong Kong, and you know maybe you have twin dueling towers. In a sense, you're right.、Um, Uh, in 2017, Shenzhen was only three billion dollars less than Hong Kong in total GDP, which is amazing considering you know 20 years ago it was a fishing village. Guang, Guangzhou, I mean, it's a powerhouse place for、uh, manufacturing. Will continue. Its、uh, plan is to upgrade their facilities so that they're more in tune with this kind of tertiary economy that is developing. And you know, a place like Macau, which has、um, been kind of single-sided in terms of its Emphasis on tourism, it can now be part of an integrated uh, uh, entity. The physical connections cannot be underestimated because this is really what is going to change、uh, the ethos of these areas. Imagine you're in Hong Kong. If if there is a way to have free movement of people, some something like a Shenzhen visa for that area. Now all of a sudden you can go somewhere and live decently, not in a you know something that resembles a closet with a, a faucet. And you know, have a decent life, but still have、uh, not only Hong Kong to live in or visit your parents, but also to、uh, have many other opportunities where you can leverage,、uh, um, you know, your learning、uh, and knowledge of、uh, not only Hong Kong but of, of Western、uh, ideas and practices. And so, Bao Cheng, on the、uh, you know、uh, Shenzhen's role and Hong Kong's role, what do you think are France, you know, of these cities of、uh, competition, and、uh, or how could these two cities cooperate with each other? Well, initially,、uh, Hong Kong was placed at the uh, uh, window, and、uh, the inner part, including Shenzhen and、uh, Guangzhou, were considered to be the factories, but nowadays. The division of labor is no longer、uh, viable as compared with before. But yes,、uh, as you mentioned, that they are now in a rivalry position because、uh, 
Uh, financially, Shenzhen is also very strong in, uh, uh, in stock exchange and also in the uh, strategic investors. But Hong Kong still has, has, has an upper hand because they uh, have a whole pool of uh, uh, globalized talent. And they uh, also have uh, the uh, more transparency in business operation and in the business climate. And uh, also that they have uh, far lower tax scheme that can really uh, leverage uh, the uh, between these uh, uh, different regions. After all, we are playing uh, among two uh, type of systems. Uh, Macau is is a big casino anyway, so it's, uh, it attracts uh, you know tourism. But mostly, uh, the uh, you know uh, by by gambling, and uh, there's not really much uh, to be uh, connected. But of course, you know the uh, uh, according to the blueprint, uh, they may become a, a training center uh, for language, Portuguese or Spanish, etc. Uh, so, uh, but more is really placed on how. Uh, the entire part is not only Guangzhou and the Shenzhen, but you know Zhongshan, Zhuhai, and all these areas will be uh, far more inter, uh, interconnected. Although these uh, four cities are really identified, because integration it means that uh, all economic factors will have to enjoy a far freer flow. Um, but uh, now is the how uh, you know how to synchronize the soft part. Of course, you know we we are very good at building connectivity. Uh, you know, uh, we have the, now the biggest bridge. We have uh, the connectivity for uh, for information, but how to ensure that uh, you know the facilitation of all procedures traveling between these uh, uh, regions, uh, both for cargo and for people, uh, is still uh, a question to uh, to be answered. Liu Baocheng and Anna Tongan speaking with my colleague Zhao Yang. Coming up, New Zealand Prime Minister disputes reports of diplomatic tensions with China. You're listening to Today. I'm Sui. We'll be back in a minute. Ever worry that you'll miss out on breaking events? Tune in to Today to get the latest news and analysis on the important stories in China and around the globe. Today, illuminating the news that matters to you. You've been listening to today. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has opened her weekly media briefing with a statement about China, saying the relationship is robust and mature. Ardern says this pair of ties remains intact since the two sides keep close cooperation on climate change, an active bilateral trade, and strong science research, cultural, and people-to-people connections. The comments came following months of uncertainty surrounding the relations between the two countries. Now join us is our chief political analyst Xu Qinduo to talk about relations between China and New Zealand. So Qinduo, why do you think Prime Minister Arden felt she had to clarify things and reaffirm their commitment on this pair of relations now? Well, I think uh, her news briefing is mostly uh, responding to the growing concern that uh, there is a tension, uh, which is also growing uh, between China and New Zealand. And uh, there have been, uh, you know, recently a series of events uh, that, of course, created more upset uh, from the uh, side of the uh, Wellington, especially the business community uh, from New Zealand. And they are asking the government or pressuring the government to uh, take measures to do something to fix the relationship with China. Um, so for example, you know, uh, we have reported actually there's a flight. Uh, which uh, it, it was being returned halfway to Shanghai due to faulty paperwork. Uh, and also there's a tourism event recently that was canceled in Wellington. You know, Prime Minister audience, the plan of visit to China was delayed. Uh, on the surface, of course, you know, be, the reason given uh, from China is a scheduling uh, issue. Uh, but from the point of view of Wellington, uh, people are suspecting that obviously uh, China is not happy. And of course, there is a legitimate, I would say, uh, unhappiness or concern about the New Zealand-China policy. In general, the relationship between the two countries have been very good, uh, except for until late, I was late last year. Uh, late last year, there was, um, you know, there's a, basically a ban issued by New Zealand spy agency. Uh, the ban basically stopped the country's largest telecom network uh, called Spark 
from using Huawei technology and Huawei equipment for its 5G network. So in a nutshell, all the issue is about Huawei. Mm -hmm. So the excuse at that time is a national security risk. Uh, but of course, as we know, it's all due to pressure uh, from uh, its neighbor, a larger neighbor, Australia, as well as Washington. And all those countries are part of the 5i buying network dominated by the U.S. So that's a, naturally there's a concern, you know, from the Chinese side, whether Chinese company is being treated fairly or objectively um, in, in New Zealand, because that obviously will affect, will have an impact on bilateral relationship in the future. So partly, mostly obviously that's a response to the growing concern about the relationship between two countries. Hmm. Interestingly, uh, the comments by uh, Prime Minister Arden came as the British government concluded that it can mitigate the risk from using Huawei equipment in 5G networks. Uh, some observers interpreted all this as setbacks for the U.S. to derail the overseas involvement of Huawei. So what's your take? Are we seeing a trend here? Oh, well, timing is part of the reason, of course, you know, why the Prime Minister Arden uh, is having a news uh, briefing, why the news briefing is drawing uh, so much attention. Uh, the British government has drawn an important conclusion uh, that the potential risk from using Huawei is avoidable. The message is critical in two aspects. On one hand, I think it facilitates Huawei's fight back against the U.S. crackdown globally. Secondly, it's critical for other countries to make a decision to think twice and adopt Huawei technologies despite the opposition uh, from Washington. You know, inevitably, people will link this uh, uh, news briefing of Arden uh, as affected by the latest British discovery of British uh, funding over there. And, uh, and they have a reason to do so. For example, Prime Minister Arden claimed that Huawei was never ruled out from participating in the country's 5G rollout. She said that, you know, talks are underway uh, to present a plan to mitigate the financial security risk. I mean, back to the large picture, you know, whether there's a trend or not, in general, I think a preliminary, you almost see a trend that is growing. That is, the individual countries are rising up against the bully or the pressure from Washington because they see no evidence that Huawei has uh, misbehaved itself in terms of so-called spying uh, efforts over there. And also it's about their national interest without the Huawei. Their 5G rollout, their 5G, uh, the use of 5G will be delayed for one year and a half uh, or even more. Uh, so I think it's a choice um, being made by those countries in this sense. Probably I think people will prioritize naturally their own national interest here. Mm -hmm. And it's also interesting to see how rapidly these news evolve. Like, like you mentioned, China and New Zealand have maintained good relations. And also when it comes to the UK, we heard before its defense secretary talk about deploying warships to the South China Sea. But right now we see Britain's security body, national security body, say Huawei's participation is a manageable risk. So things like this, do you think we need to better maybe identify the, the fundamentals or maybe, maybe the mainstreams when we talk about bilateral relations? Uh, yes. And if you look at uh, the uh, recent development, I think the countries and their governments increasingly are getting a better understanding of uh, uh, the Huawei issue. Uh, first of all, the focus on Huawei and the fabricated so-called potential risks are out of a geopolitical consideration by Washington, not by governments in London or Wellington or Berlin or other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. The U.S. views 5G as the fundamental part of the foundation, say, for the next generation of Internet, either about Internet of Things or artificial intelligence, or driverless cars. All of those developments will be dependent on the 5G as this foundation. So there's a tremendous, uh, tremendous anxiety in Washington that it may lag behind uh, China in terms of 5G technology, and it may fail to maintain its predominant position in uh, technologies and also innovation. The problem is Washington's response to this potential challenge is not to, uh, is not to, like uh, a fair competition, is not to take measures to strengthen its competition, but the result to uh, what amounting to, uh, you know, gangsterism, to pressure allies to bind Huawei uh, completely on fabricated, you know, security risk. They have as we know, Washington has so far failed to provide any single piece of evidence to prove their claim. 
And that's also why some of their allies even also oppose Washington's claim because they are seeing uh, no evidence at all. So the key issue here is the big power competition. It's really between uh, you know, China and the United States. So, well, U.S. is adopting uh, so-called you know, geopolitical, strategic big power uh, competition strategy against China. Other players like the U.K., New Zealand, Germany, and other European countries, you would see there <laughs> if they adopt the U.S. position, they would be all serving the U.S. interests at the expense of their relationship with China, at the expense of their own national interests. So that would be a stupid choice. So the concern is not about Huawei itself. It's about uh, where Huawei is from. It's not about those countries' national security. It's all about Washington's priorities in competing with China. Thank you very much, Chindo, for your time this evening. We've been talking with our chief political analyst, Xu Chindo. Let's take a short break here. Still to come, former U.S. President Barack Obama is said to be involved with NBA-backed Africa League. You're listening to Today. Stay with us. With the great efforts made by the staff today, become one of the great uh, platforms for policy debates and information dissemination. And I wish today have an even brighter and a greater tomorrow. Welcome back. The NBA will launch a professional league in Africa next year. The announcement was made on the eve of the 68th NBA All-Star Game. The Basketball Africa League will feature 12 teams chosen after qualification tournaments later this year, with Angola, Egypt, Kenya, Morocco, Nigeria, Rwanda, Senegal, South Africa, and Tunisia expected to be represented. No more than two teams from the same African country can qualify for the league. Former U.S. President Barack Obama, who is a huge basketball fan, is also expected to play a role. The league is expected to start playing in January 2020. With more on this, my colleague Zhao Ying is now joining us in the studio. So Zhao Ying, this is perhaps one of NBA's most ambitious projects in years. So how are they going to put that into place? Yes, it is a very ambitious plan. And actually, this will be the very first time that the league is directly involved in an operation outside of North America. But actually, NBA has invested heavily in Africa over the past years. For example, they have programs such as Basketball Without Borders and Giants of Africa. And it set up an office in South Africa in 2010 and has an academy in Senegal. And NBA has also put on three games in Africa in the past five years. All of this have promoted the development of basketball industry in Africa. And there are already several professional teams across Africa. So this time, NBA is planning to unify them into one place and will provide financial support and some infrastructure and resources that are needed, as well as training for the players, coaches and referees. Where does the investment, the money come from? Well, according to the NBA commissioner Adam Silver, there will be uh, there has been a tremendous reception for, from many of the NBA team owners, and several of the partners of the NBA have expressed expressed their strong desire to partner with this new basketball Africa League. For example, uh, Jordan Brand, Michael Jordan's signature line of Nike products, and Pepsi, they are both among them. So you are talking about uh, the basketball industry in Africa. So what does this mean for the African continent? Well, Adam Silver said that they are committed to using basketball as an economic engine to create new opportunities in sports, media, and technology across Africa. Well, first of all, there are many uh, talents on this continent. Uh, so with the investment by the NBA that I just mentioned, there are now 13 NBA players from Africa this season. And the most well-known one is perhaps Philadelphia 66ers Joel Embiid. And besides that, 78% of NBA players have ties to Africa. So there must be many more young talents on the African continent. They just need more opportunities. For example, um, uh, Dikembe Mutombo, the Hall of Famer, he was born in Congo, and he was also at the, the announcement. And Adam, Adam Silver said that the success of players like Mutombo pointed to the opportunity that existed not just in basketball, but the sports industries throughout the continent. 
And there are lots of young players in Africa who know about the success of Mutombo, but don't understand how to pursue those opportunities. Because we know Mutombo went to the school in the United States and be at the Georgetown and got the coaching and mentoring. But many players in Africa, they does not know who to turn to. So this project will definitely provide more opportunities for the players in Africa. And more importantly, this is not only about sports. It goes beyond that because sports could be an engine for economy. It will promote the development of sports-related industries and, of course, create more jobs. Um, the sports industry is said to be growing faster than the national economy in China, and the rate of sports employment has been growing at a faster pace than total employment in the European Union. However, in Africa, the role of sports in economic development is yet to be fully realized. So there's a huge potential for the commercialization of sports in Africa. And NBA has done very well in that, so they must have lots of experiences to share. So this new professional league is a very important step to commercialize sports in Africa and to contribute to the economic growth and employment. Yes, indeed. The former U.S. President Barack Obama is also reported to have a role with the league. Any idea what role would that be? Well, indeed, he is expected to have a role, but the extent of his involvement has yet to be announced. But we know he is a basketball fan, has done lots of work on that. Uh, and while he was in office, he even had a basketball court installed at the White House. And in 2018, he made a trip to Kenya, which was his first visit to his father's native since leaving office. And while he was there, he took part in a basketball-oriented event, benefiting a foundation formed by his half-sister that uses sports and education to help the young people in rural Kenya to gain greater opportunities. So I think it is good news for, for this new league that is going to be involved in this, and more details will be released in the coming months. So we know NBA is a commercial league. So in return, what is NBA trying to get from this project? Yes, you're right. NBA is the most profitable professional basketball league in the world. And it has been expanding its market all over the world over the past decades. For example, we know it is now it has a very huge and mature market in China and also in other Asian countries like India and the Philippines. However, they are yet to find the most capable players in Asia that can really become a superstar in the NBA like Yao Ming. So I think maybe their most important goal in Africa is not to make money uh, because the consumption level is relatively low in Africa. I guess their top priority is to find more talents in Africa that can play in the NBA to be the next Joel Embiid. And compare with that to promote their culture in Africa and to facilitate the development of basketball industry in Africa are perhaps all the byproducts of this move. Thank you very much. That was Zhao Ying, our reporter, for joining us uh, this evening. If you want to listen to this episode again or catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching for World News Analysis. The program engineer of this episode is Maya Qing. I'm Sui. Thanks for listening and happy Lanner Festival. I wish you a happy and prosperous year of the pig. <laughs>